This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. We've been talking a lot about internet freedom on the show lately, and we continue with that subject today. This time, we turn to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The invasion has set off a cascade of human tragedies, of course, and it is those tragedies that are the central story of the war. We've also seen determination, courage, and heroism, both in Ukraine and in Russia itself, among Russian dissidents. And that, too, is a very important story. One theme of our show today is how technology and the internet can assist people bravely resisting oppression. Our launching off point will be the discrete issue of access to the internet in Russia. My guest, Shane Tews, wrote a great article on the subject. As she asks in her title, is shutting down the Russian internet an act of tyranny or democracy? Shane is a true friend of the show, so I'm delighted to have her on. She is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she works on a wide range of tech policy issues. She is president of Logan Circle Strategies, a strategic advisory firm. She does all sorts of other stuff, but the main thing to highlight is that she chairs the board of directors here at Tech Freedom. Shane, welcome. Thank you, Corbin. And I haven't had the chance to tell you what a great job you've been doing with this podcast. I'm glad you've kept it up. I know the reason for doing it initially was a lot of smart conversation was taking place and it wasn't necessarily being spoken out loud. So I appreciate that you're continuing to do this. Well, thank you so much. I've been having great fun. I I still sort of see myself as just keeping the seat warm, but slowly but surely I am am growing growing out of that imposter syndrome. That might be true of all of our roles in in policy. I was going to say in Washington, but just in general. (laughs) Put a pin in it. Okay, we need, yes, episode on uh, tech world in D.C. and careers and imposter syndrome. We'll circle back to that one. But for today, we're diving deep into the weeds. Your article does a great job of explaining some of the mechanics of the internet. Uh, I think a lot of us kind of go through our lives, and even I, as Internet Policy Council, it's a series of tubes, it works. We don't think too much about it. As a result, it just is magic and it happens. Well, no, a lot goes on behind it. Uh, I can, you mentioned in the article, it's not exactly a household name, but it's very important. Uh, Many people don't know how the domain name system works. So very much to set the table here, could you walk us through the nuts and bolts of the uh, backbone of the internet? And then uh, as your article gets into, you know, if you wanna shut off access to a website in a region, How do you go about doing that? Absolutely. So we're going to start with some real fundamentals here. So when you enter a web address into a browser, which is also known as a domain name. So if it's nobody really does the www anymore. Actually, most people don't even enter an address anymore because we have the Google machine who does all that work for us or whichever browser you choose. But in theory, you enter a web address into the browser with the domain name. It goes through a routing process. It sends a lookup request to where to find the server of where that domain name server resides. And then it sends a query for a connection to the communication. And all that happens in nanoseconds. Uh, 
So that is, uh, um, it, it, it's basically a routing table. It's a distributed ledger of information. So I go from my computer, which is on the backbone of an internet service provider. In my case, it's Comcast, as I sit here in Washington. It then queries a computer, which then would eventually send me to Corbin.com. Now there's a couple points to that uh, in the layers of the process. So you do have your internet service provider or you might be on an enterprise host server. So just kind of keep these in mind that there's, there's variations on this theme. They may already know the address from a past query. It may not need to go all the way up what they refer to as the, the pyramid or the stack to find that internet, uh, internet, uh, sorry, internet protocol number. I was like IP, I wanted to say and another IP, um, internet protocol number. And we're going to have to fight not to have like acronym plague on this. Well, I know, okay, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. So, but what, but the reason why I bring that up is, you know, if you do this for the first time, you know, not native to any of this, it would have to go query this entire process up to what they call, you know, the, the original root zone, but the root zone itself doesn't actually have that much information in it. It has the, who has .com, who has .bank, who has .us or .eu, or in this case, we'll be discussing .ru. And the reason why that's important to know is that these queries time out at some point. And the connections usually have a time to live that are, we'll just say for this discussion, this 24 hours. That means the computer asks a question and it may remember the answer for 24 hours. And that's important to know because when you think you're going to shut something off, it doesn't just cleave it off. That means that there are all these connections around the globe and some of them have varying time permissions to how long they keep that information. And then at some point they have what's called a memory cache. The, the memory caches out, it's basically blanked out and you have to start back up that routing tree again. So that means if you are taking a domain name out of the reading process, it may eventually go out, but it's not gonna go out instantaneously. But there's a second part to this, which has kind of an entertaining story, which I think will be memorable for people. There is something called Border Gateway Protocol, BGP, which is the, we call routing by rumor. And this has been a challenge to the system for quite some time. And let me just walk you through this process and, and something that happened uh, that involves the Pakistani government. So the routing process selects a path for traffic in the network between or across multiple networks and it sends the information, but it's really kind of a buddy system. So there are, you know, depending on who owns the network system, they have preferred paths. And usually the preferred path is really more geolocation or maybe it, it has to do with um, some sort of connection contract that they have. And, and so I'll use an example and this will make sense. Um, so Pakistan, back in 2008 was upset about an anti-Islamic movie that was posted onto YouTube. So Pakistan tried to delete YouTube from just Pakistan in theory. And the end result was that two thirds of the global internet population lost the path to YouTube because as this routing by rumor happened, Pakistan did what they call black holing, which is basically they pulled the IP, the internet protocol number out of their government owned ISP. Then the next time that one of the other routers went to queue for it, it didn't exist. So as it's routing by rumor, what rumors are people chatting, in this case, the router's chatting, the router then told all the routers it's attached to, hey, YouTube's gone. 
you know, it has no point of view on that other than it's gone. Like I look for it, my buddy who usually gives me the IP number is gone. So now for it's gone, that quickly uh, mimicked its way throughout the globe. And then um, the servers of eventually, you know, Google, Alphabet, YouTube at, at the time, uh, had to come back in and reestablish the path uh, and had to get a hold of the Pakistani telecom ISP that you know had requested this original black holing. So you think about that, and that was a, a case where you had um, a lot of international data carriers had to be you know queried through all this, and eventually it it resolved itself. Is but, this similar to though? It didn't Facebook manage to do that to itself for a day last year? Uh, yeah, same thing. It's just, it's a matter of, um, it's, it's a little bit like, it's a, it's a really old school analogy. Most, I'm sure everybody this, we playing telephone. Remember when you used to, I'd tell you something and you'd say it and you'd say it. And so the problem is if somebody messes up the message somewhere along this, in this case, the, the query, it, it then gets messed up all the way throughout the process. That seems insane compared to like how many things that, you know, computers do, but it's, it's partially human error factor in the way that some of the um, servers are configured. And some of it's just, it's one of those, they haven't quite figured out a completely safe way to hopscotch throughout the globe on other people's systems. There were some fun tweets at the time of like, little known fact, the entire global internet is held together by uh, chewing gum and duct tape. There's still a lot of, we'll call it bubble gum and balsa wood that is in the layering of the internet infrastructure, which is shocking, which is why there's a big push for web three, by the way. So we want to, you know, we want to geofence something, and maybe we're a little more competent than Pakistan is. Uh, you know, what does that look like? So there, there's there's two reasons. One, and this is just uh, so ICANN is the Internet Corporation on assigned names and numbers, and what ICANN was created to do was allow, hold, hang with me for a second, the multi-stakeholder process into the internet governance process via the Department of Commerce, and that just meant how do we put the people in with government and create a decision-making body? And so out of that, ICANN was created. Now that was for not the government uh, TL, top level domains, which is, uh, and I, I, I'm sorry, I really can't use .us because nobody releases .us, but it does exist. Uh, so for the case of, of the country codes, not all of them are signed up to be part of ICANN. So it's just, just a quick, you know, kind of delineation on this. There are a lot of them, what they do is they sign memorandums of understanding. UK was the first one. England said, you know what, we're going to agree to abide by your rules until you piss us off more or less. So um, they just said, we'll come along and it's easier to basically use ICANN as best practices. So that, there's a lot of governments that do that. The reason why ICANN is important in this particular instance is because they were handed over the responsibility of what's known as, as the, it's another acronym, sorry, the IANA process. The IANA process is that root process that I talked about. So the idea was to basically tell, was to stop sending traffic to .ru. If you take .ru out of, and um, .su, which is sort of an anomaly that the Soviet Union still has a domain name, but it does. Uh, so if you take those out of the root zone, that whole idea of the propagation or the, the timing out that I mentioned in the Pakistan example, it would take a while, first of all. It's not going to be instantaneous, so you're not going to get that instant gratification of we blacked out Russia, right? And it, would, it would eventually happen. There would be lots of other balsa wood and bubblegum ways of, around it, um, but that also means we would cut off the the citizens of Russia. And you know, while we're fighting disinformation and misinformation, the fact that we would cut off any communication with a, a group of people which are not who we're having an argument with. We are not worried about those people 
understanding things, were worried about the actual Russian government inflicting war on the Ukraine. So um, that's just a little bit of like how all that that background works. And then the other thing uh, to think about, so this is why the U.S. government way back created what they call um, Tor. Tor is a way, it's actually a software program that you download and um, it's, sorry, I'm still looking it up here, uh, the Onion Router. So it um, sends traffic through, uh, you know, a pyramid of, of random servers, and then it eventually relays your message. And that way, that's called an exit relay. That is done so you can send things in as mo- much of an anonymized fashion as possible. So there's been a big interest in bringing some element of Tor back to the Russian people because it allows them to hide their IP address, IP address in, in this internet protocol address, every time they send a request on the internet and give them a layer of um, encryption or protection to their traffic. Now that there is still the challenge, and this is the case also um, with, you know, we, people talk about virtual private networks. And even though a virtual private network acts more like a, a cover to the information that's that's flowing. It may be your phone or a tablet or computer or, or even maybe a router. You um, you choose to throw to have your information go through a secure server. And I kind of think about it as like hiring a bodyguard for your data, right? So you, you the thing is for VPNs, you can hire the version of the mall cop or you can hire a version of Blackwater. It depends on how much money you want to spend on a VPN process. But you have to realize that even if you do that, they can still see where your traffic is coming and going. What they can't do is they can't see the information in the traffic if it's if the VPN is working efficiently. Well, yeah. So that's an interesting question to me, and we've seen um, we've seen this topic come up at the most uh, basic level in Ukraine of people really not understanding how traceable, say, your smartphone is, and then uh, basically, you know reviewing their location and getting themselves shelled or like the Russian military apparently has had a total failure at certain points to have encrypted communication. And they've had to use single channel, like basic, basically going back to the way you do secure radio from like the Vietnam war. Um, All that signal intelligence. Yes. So how hard it is, is it, you know, so I want to have end to end encrypted technology, you know, uh, communications. And, you know, if I don't know what I'm doing and I just sort of download a VPN, there's a very good chance, right, that I don't do it correctly and I'm still exposed. I mean, how many steps would an average Russian citizen have to go to to make sure that, in, in fact, communications are protected? Well, part of that challenge is, um, and R- Russia is a, a good example. Actually, China is probably the best example, is you're, you're already using a government... Uh, internet service provider. So there's a certain point where they just may not allow that to happen. And, and so that there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Uh, that's why the, this tour that I mentioned, which also, you know, people will call it the onion and, and there's not always an understanding about, you know, why it's called an onion. And the idea is that it has layers of protection like an onion. And that's where the, you know, it was, it's called the onion router. And, um, and so you try to do a version of that, but you have to have kind of collaborative partners along the way there. So there, that's why you'll see something that you know, certain browsers will be used. And that's even true even if you in the crypto space right now. Um, there's a particular browser that people like just for crypto because crypto is so susceptible to people wanting to steal from it. Uh, so the challenge is finding a browser and using software that is going to allow you to actually encrypt the um, and you, you know use a VPN uh, tunnel. So it, it, it takes layers of complicated 
entities, friction points is another way to think of it. And if you are good at this, someone will lay them out for you. And if you're bad at it, um, it'll get frustrating. And what will happen, and this happens just in general security, is you start to take the layers of security off because they frustrate you. It's like my mother using the same password for everything, right? She can't remember her password. So you just, they insist on a password. She uses the same one. I know what it is. I can walk in on her house. I can get into any of her accounts. And so there's there's kind of a friction element of the same thing. If you use a VPN that gets to be too kludgy, people will just drop it and they'll stop using it. Or like Tor. It's not like you you set up your Tor and then there's a Google. You know, you really need to know where you're headed. Um, and if right. you don't, you know, it's not that useful. Yeah, it's it's just helping your traffic pass through um, to you know kind of obfuscate it. So you have to know that you're using a proper Tor browser. Um, I think it's Firefox has always been pretty, one of the better ones to use Tor on, but it's not perfect. And it, you know, it literally gets to the stage, I, I saw footage and I didn't see this was confirmed. So take it with the grain of salt, but of Russian authorities in Moscow, just stopping people and searching their phones, open up your phone and say, so at the end of the day, there is a there is a human element that is totally unavoidable. Um, but we also have asked the same thing of anybody coming into the United States. There's actually a question if you're not a U.S. citizen that when they come into the border, the um, border patrol can ask you for your passwords. I mean, that's crazy, right? You know. Yeah. So there's while it's interesting to see and and really worry about the Russian people and what their governments do them. We also ask us a lot of questions about how we're managing our, our own information flow. Well, there's just so much. And that leads into a very important question. There's there's a lot of stuff that's going on now that should be eye-opening to people um, at the highest level of sort of the value of liberal democratic values, but then at a more uh, uh, tech-centric level, the value of encryption or hey, it turns out Tor is useful for more than just buying drugs and guns. Um, so could you walk us through the cost-benefit analysis as a uh, Western nation of pressuring, say, ICANN to shut down DNS servers in Russia? I mean, what do we get out of that sanction or what, what would we hope to? But then, you know, what are the costs here, which you've already somewhat alluded to that we're not um, in, like any sanctions regime, you're going straight after the people instead of the state. That's obvious. But what are the broader ramifications and what kind of precedent could it set? So let me use a different example of Egypt during um, the Arab Spring. The Egyptian government has three main tunnels of uh, information flow for the Internet out to outside of Egypt. They made sure that the one that the government has 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 put all of the uh, financial information flow on was kept open. The ones that were kept closed were the ones that were most likely used for citizen communication. And then you saw as they were like, you know, shutting down and going to things like Twitter and asking them to shut things down the, uh, the, the Arab Spring. And we learned a lot during that. I mean, I, I, the time I was at a, a tech company and I asked them to do a lot of analytics because we were watching like the, the flow and we kept waiting when it was happening. You know, it was before we realized they were just going to go down to basically one tube, as you called it. Uh, you know, and we were like our information flow at the network level that we could see was still flowing. What we couldn't see was in country. So um, that's kind of been a challenge that you have when you're in these um, governments that are as much as fully controlling of their communication systems. A lot of them, because a lot of this comes straight out of the old telecommunications networks. So, and they just became the internet provider because they were the telecommunications provider. And there is not a lot of 
economic incentive for uh, you know more westernized systems to come in to there. So that's um, that is a challenge. When it comes to encryption, I I'm, I'm a, I, I love law enforcement. I am a big believer that they have a, the right. You know, they do a lot of good work. However, once you break something, it's broken, right? So this whole idea of backdoor into encryption is complete nonsense as far as i'm concerned you can't do that you can't create uh if you're gonna in any instance it's in the same case of a physical instance if you put something that weakens encryption everybody will find that inflection point and they'll ping on it until they break it what specifically does it look like if we say shut down the dns servers in russia you kind of got into this i think a little bit earlier but like it's not like the internet, quote unquote, just shuts down and doesn't work. I mean, how much gets taken out? So again, you have to realize that the the DNS servers are not the same. Um, I think people tend to like to think of them as like wireless, like where, you know, when you have an outage, I don't even want to name a company. Like but, taking know, out the tower. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way because of that, the relay that I mentioned where there's all of this time to live information. So even if you took, you know, dot RU out, you, you could also say, you'd have to block as well. You wouldn't just take dot RU out of the service. It would, the time to live would take quite a while for people not to be able to find it. But then you'd have to say to any sanctioned company, or you'd have to make up some set of rules that don't currently exist that say, don't accept traffic from anything coming off of dot RU. Now, a commercial entity that could tell you that it's probable is that there's a couple of domain names that are very well known for spam. And everything that comes off of them is basically a criminal operation. And there are certain internet service providers who say, I will not accept any traffic off of an internet protocol number, the IP number that comes off of this particular dot something, something, something. And especially if they can look and they notice that it's just, it's just a lot of bad malware or negative traffic, they will just, the, the ISP will have in their contract, they will just say, I'm not accepting this. So you could do that and say, I am not going to accept traffic that comes off of anything from .ru. And that's what you would end up doing is if you really, really wanted to communicate with people, spend a lot of time doing rerouting and figuring out how to, that's where Tor comes in, is you come off of something that is not a .ru provided IP number, and maybe it gets rerouted through Finland. I'm just going to try to make it geo-centric and easy to understand. Uh, And it's there are, are certain ways to do that. You have to be... A little, you know, engineering clever helps there, but you know, there it's there are ways to do it. The again, that because it's a government designed um, internet process over there, you cannot just say that you know the, the hell of the government there, and we're not going to service these people. But somehow the way you know, kind of the invert of what Egypt did, where Egypt was like finance is really important. You know, we don't really care about this Twitter shit, so let's get that over with. Uh, you know, they um, you you cannot very easily say no to Putin, but yes to the people. Like you, you kind of have to make a choice and then it's just the wrong layer of the network operation for that to happen. There are, it, we're seeing from all these different ways that companies are coming out of Russia. They're not doing business there. They're not, um, they're not, they're, they're rerouting their supply chain outside of things that they need in Russia because they just want to deplete their economy. That's a bit, a kind of a similar way that you would have to do that. And you're, you are seeing that where certain, um, certain businesses are not using, they're not providing cloud to them anymore. And so servers, actual physical servers are a challenge because we have gotten into this natural way of doing business where you don't keep things harbored on your computer. And what the 
cloud means, I always remind people, is someone else's computer. It's not like there's really no cloud. Uh, but you know, so it, so I think Microsoft has said no, and they are not um, serving up Azure right now. Now, of course, the thing I keep wondering, and I haven't seen great statistics on this, is how many people were really doing business in Russia to begin with? Like, I don't think anyone's like losing their, you know, it's kind of the old sleeves off their vest. Um, I think that they're, you know, some of these companies are making a big deal by getting out of Russia and they probably are candidly happy to get out of Russia because they weren't making much money there unless they were one of the chosen ones. Well, it's a testament to how good I have it as a certified member of the laptop class that I, I really understood when the headline was, you know, Slack cuts off service in Russia. I'm like, oh, that's a hard day for a few people. Uh, with all of their information in, in the cloud who are um, doing laptop classy things. Anyway, I mentioned the possibility of this setting, you know, cut, tr trying to shut down Russia's internet being, a, a, you know, setting a bad precedent. I wonder how long such a precedent could even be set. Um, you know, we have a lot of new developments. You mentioned Web3. We also have SpaceX, Elon Musk. Uh, he actually revealed last year that SpaceX, the satellite internet service, uh, they're working on making it operable without a local downlink. And a journalist asked Musk, you know, how does that work on the regulatory side? And Musk responded, I thought this was pretty funny, frankly. He said they can shake their fist at the sky. Yes. Um, sort of true. Maybe you can enlighten me. Yeah, because how literal is that? You know, if I have a smartphone and I'm in Russia, um, and Russia shuts down YouTube and I want to get on YouTube, is the presence of SpaceX over my head sufficient for me to get around the Russian government? So um, not likely is <laughs> I guess the best answer on that. I looked at the Ukrainian situation because you, you mentioned that um, as something you'd want to talk about and they have an interesting uh, situation that they're on. But I actually talk about Ukraine first and then we'll talk about Russia. Great. Because where, you know, Musk has said he's, you know, he does have the capability. He has lots of, you know, real estate in the sky right now to point things specifically at the Ukraine. And uh, so there, there are two different, all oh, this is so complicated. There are two different layers of um, satellite activity. And a lot of what he's doing is, in, is what is lower earth um, orbital. And so those are stationed with the idea of they, they only, I'm going to be super simple here. They'd only be on top of like Utah and California, right? I mean, that's very basic and not actually true, but close, right? You know, just give you a concept. So they, they, he's, they're trying to figure out how do they get into the right spatial, you know, geolocation to be able to take this, their, um, their activity into the Ukraine, but, but that's only just, you don't, you can't really hold your, as much as that would be fun to be able to hold your phone up, even though I used to do that all the time and drive my engineers nuts. But like the internet's not working and I'd hold my phone up in the sky and they go, stop that. <laughs> add some, uh, add some tinfoil to it. Right. Like I did as a kid with the radio. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 you were learning spectrum way back. Then. I seriously put tinfoil on a radio antenna to get better reception of baseball games dating myself. Yeah, okay. no, I, it, and then that actually works because you're, you know, there's, well, we won't even go there, but um, there's, it, it, it had a, it, the type of spectrum you're using then work, but so you were understanding that there's layers to this. So when it comes to satellite spectrum, there are global agreements about 
you know, where, who gets to use what space. And so that's why, you know, the whole idea of Elon Musk saying you can just go out to the sky and, you know, shake your hand or shake your, 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 your fist at him. He may not have access to that spectrum, or if he's doing it, maybe he's just saying, I'm going to do it until somebody tells me I have to shut it off. And the problem is that's also precedent setting because one of the challenges that we have several companies besides SpaceX that are interested in, in going into this Leo space, the lower Earth um, orbital, is they're very concerned about um, the Chinese because they say they're just not very careful in general, right? And so you've got a lot of really expensive equipment up there. And if the Chinese try to come in and shoot into the spectrum space right in between them and they bang into your billion dollar little you know toy up there that's supposed to be, you know, doing... so once once we have somebody like Elon Musk being a little, uh, you know, he ever realized he's just trying to, you know, make a point, but you, you, we, we don't want to be very uh, laissez-faire about how we use, you know, all this technology, because then the Chinese will come right back at us and say, well, you didn't care when it was happening to Russia. So we don't care that we just knocked down a bunch of your commercial stuff. And that is I really just, a conversation that's happening, by the way. I, I Maybe I got confused here, separating out the possibility. So Jim Dunstan, our general counsel, yeah. can come on and talk about the problems yeah. that if you get one space collision, the amount of debris, you know, you're creating a thousand fold increase in the risk of further collisions or whatever. He could yeah. correct me about the precise thing. So that's one risk you're bringing up. But are you also talking about bad precedents with who's beaming down signals where? Uh, it's the repositioning of the satellites. That's the concern that Jim has. So simply yeah, the problem of like satellite traffic jam. There aren't that many uh, places one can shoot an, a satellite into the sky. So we don't have a lot of people that I know of right now throwing a bunch of really expensive equipment in the sky on a rogue basis. You know, they may, may, but I don't know everything. Um, so that could be happening. But one place where we used to do a lot of, um, we used, I mean, they were doing a lot of uh, other space stuff that's not going on right now is Russia. So everybody's had to redesign where they're going through. So, you know, they've got certain places where they can, they can put these up and, and they're in the middle of building more of those in the U S Texas actually is a great spot that they, they're looking at. And um, we're seeing places like Amazon's looking to come into this space. So that's all future fun for probably another uh, podcast. But um, so in the case of the, the Ukraine, I'm, I was just looking up, I can't find the name of the company uh, that, I mean, that that was having trouble with this. And their point, and this actually goes to something in our own broadband you know, discussions that we're having now, is how do you fix the space in between the very urban densified areas where there probably is a lot of underground you know, fiber and that's not, your concern isn't, you know, you can get to that, right? So what do you do with the, the outer places or if you've, got a, if you've got a moving military and you're trying to make sure that, everybody's staying connected. Where they go to is the fixed wireless, uh, as you mentioned, like the antennas. At some point, those beams don't go directly to your phone. They may come into, you know, but but they're more or less going to go into a fixed uh, physical point that then is going to work just more or less like wireless does into another entity. So there's multiple tiers where you can block even satellite technology. So, So a lot of everything's, everything's a big community here. Chance, chances are Elon Musk cannot just get you access for YouTube in Russia. Um, what about blockchain and Web3 then? Um, what are the possibilities for, um, say, making domain names, putting them on the blockchain? So, you know, does that get around DNS shutdowns? And, and beyond that, is the Internet ever going to be just unblockable? So the thing that excites 
web people about web three are there the people that are more or less mad they didn't get in and do more on web two and become the bajillionaires that we all read about every day right so they're trying to figure out a way to create what they'll say is a more more diplomacy into the internet and that means through some sort of decentral you know decentralization as well as block all blockchain is is a, a ledger so you know, the whole idea of having a ledger where something goes from me to you, to someone else, you know, to Jim, to the next person, that's, that's great from a transparency and accountability process, but we're already finding people that are trying to figure out how they can always obfuscate even on, on a blockchain. So that doesn't help. Uh, and and the, the DNS is you'd ask like, if, should we put them on a blockchain? They're on a blockchain. Like they're, every time there's a transaction between computers, there is a record of that. So that's all actually currently happening. So Web3 is really interesting, but not in the case of helping the current situation in Russia. It's interesting in how to move um, more capability to use the internet outside of the current platforms is really what Web3 is about. Um, I'd like to turn to your cybersecurity expertise because that's an also an interesting piece of this puzzle. And it's one of the many tech areas that you're uh, deeply knowledgeable in. As the Ukraine war drags on, there's been a lot of talk of you know, cyber attacks from Russia are coming. As far as I, I've seen, we have not yet had any headline grabbing events, but maybe you'll correct me. You know, What should we be on the lookout for? Maybe this requires you dip us in with a brief history of what Russia has been doing, but uh, um, is that something that uh, it's only a matter of time before cyber attacks are grabbing our attention, shall we say? So um, cyber attacks aren't always a direct hit. It's not like a missile coming down, even though it might've felt that way during the colonial pipeline when they were able to get into somebody's system. And that's a, a different, that's a, it's a unique attack, which generally what happens there, cyber security originally was the old castle and moat idea. So it was, if you were, you know, this is really in the enterprise um, area, not necessarily for individuals, but you would have your, your, all your systems, and then you'd build a big moat around the system. But the concept there was that, that the moat kept everything away from the castle, whatever was going in the castle was right. And it, as long as nobody crossed through the barrier, you were good. And the idea was to put the protection at the, at the outside, the external walls or the, the moat. What that ignored is the idea of somebody getting across the moat, let's say, you know, during, uh, you know, market day when they would let people into the castle to come in to do things and then they stayed and then they got into the queen quarter and they got into the, you know, the jewels eventually. And that's a lot of how a lot of, a lot of these current environment work is they just, they get in and when they see a point of vulnerability and then they don't act right away because the best thing to do is, is sit inside a system. You watch how people behave and, and, it, there's there are two sides to it. One of them that always kind of freaks people out is there's a real human element to this. A lot of uh, what was really big a couple of years ago, and now we're seeing this with ransomware, is they go in and they they watch. Um, they have an algorithm that will watch just how people talk on, in the uh, environment, and then the AI will learn how to emulate the language, and so that makes it very easy for you to send. This, it looked like the CFO sends a note to somebody who says, hey, I'm on my way out of town with my kids, but we're onboarding a new client and um, we need to give them this information, make sure it gets to this bank account because it's, you know, my assistant's out. I mean, they'll, they'll actually watch for all of these things. So that's, that's kind of a corporate espionage way that you're seeing things happen. That has migrated into smaller dollar entities, which has become ransomware, which is they kind of 
know enough and guess enough about your human nature to come in and lock up your business and you have to pay your way out of that. So that's where the Russians and somewhat of the Chinese have been spending most of their time and money right now is just petty crime. We'll call it petty, you know, petty crime, or in some cases, bigger crime on the internet. Now you take those same concepts and you start to turn it into more weaponization. It isn't necessarily going to be shutting down the networks because our, our networks, God love them, are pretty resilient. Um, so when you look to see what you think they're going to be doing, it's going to be, it's going to lock up the ATMs. It is going to be, you know, figuring out how to empty bank accounts. And so banks are, are pretty good at this. But the, the problem is, as compute moves to the edge, the, everybody worries about the, you know, the weakest link. In this case, the weakest link is, is most often your customer. So how do you make the people that use your system smarter? And uh, that is an ongoing challenge. If you're in an enterprise system and you're forced to have certain behavior to get access to data, you will eventually learn that behavior to get access to that data. As a consumer, they lower the barrier to entry because you're going back to the earlier friction points I talked about. As soon as you put friction points in place, a lot of people will walk away. It's like when you're on a um, you're on something and they call it the abandoned shopping cart, right? Like it just became too difficult to do what you were trying to do, and you're like, oh, forget it. I don't I don't need that thing. So it's the same thing in areas of um, you know people using the system. And so part of it is they'll just start to make things difficult to manage. And that will be well at a corporate level, but at an individual level. But I definitely would say they're going to go after anything where they can either take or prevent money. So they're either going to come in and continue to do things like these ransomware attacks, or they're going to, they're, they're going to do things that be very disruptive in the system. And the, as a, a consumer or as an individual, those are the things we need to worry about. That is candidly why there's a lot of concern about these current pieces of legislation uh, called the Open Markets Act, where they're saying, put any piece of software, any piece of software should be, be able to go onto any device. And what that does is it takes all those layers of protection that we have built, we, that these companies have built into these systems because individuals have an assumption that, that the protection is there. If you start to take away those layers of protection, that is going to be a field day for bad people. So there's that. And then the other side is trying to figure out lessons learned. So let's go back to the um, colonial pipeline is you want to take the, the lessons that have been learned by some of these industries and then where they're actually reported to, which is kind of interesting is um, like there's, so they, they're called information uh, sharing ISACs, uh, information something, something. And it, so the ISACs, uh, have taken these lessons and now there's an actual restaurant and hospitality ISAC because they think that you know, during COVID, the whole idea of the food supply chain and that includes you know, grocery stores is that's eventually where they can see where mischief can happen. So I don't think we're looking at a, a kind of a cyber version of the you know, nuclear bomb or looking at as a com complete way of figuring out how to just mess up things that go on in society and just, you know, I mean, Think of the supply chain management for COVID is our own fault, you know, because it, but now you take that and you add in Russian or Chinese mischief and it's going to, and then people start to get angry. And that, so that's a lot of what they're trying to do. It's not just make your computer stop. They're trying to make society stop. So you have to think about it in the layers of how they think about disruption and um, doing things from a cybersecurity perspective is a very heavy hammer, but it's not their only tool. Last question I'd like to circle back to internet freedom as we uh, close out. Russia and China have long been active at ICANN and elsewhere in wanting to push for an architecture of the internet that gives them a lot of control. 
Russia and China just fundamentally do not share our speech mores. I've uh, prodded and probed, maybe looking for some optimism to you about, well, you know, can SpaceX uh, fight the good fight for us or Web3 and you're, you know, poking some holes and talking about how complicated the system is. Do you have high level thoughts on where you'd like to see things go with internet technology and internet governance that will lead to um, an open internet and will fight the global fracturing of the internet in the years to come? So just a, a kind of a point of clarification uh, is that uh, ICANN has, the, Ru the Russians and the Chinese have shown up to the meetings or something called a government advisory committee, but they don't, they're not very vocal. They're more observers. And if anything, um, they may be pe passing messages through uh, some of the Chinese companies, but the Chinese company, I mean, the way it's, that actually is a very decentralized space. And um, where I think you're talking about is actually the International Telecommunications Union. Mm -hmm. So the ITU is, has very strong, both Russian and Chinese leadership. And they have a big a meeting coming up this year called the Plenty Potentiary, called Plenty Pot. There are um, elections coming up. So there are three entities in the ITU, uh, which I won't bother you guys with right now, but um, one of the women, well, the, the first uh, the first woman and the first American to do this actually is uh, Doreen Bogdan Martin. She's uh, She is running for the head of the ITU against a Russian. And they just had a kind of a shadow vote in a lower meeting last week and the Russians lost. So that was like a really big deal in this tiny little community that follows this stuff that Doreen has a very good chance possibly of becoming the first uh, person to run, woman and American to run the ITU. And why that's important is we used to send government representatives along with our US delegation. So there's this whole interagency process that you and I've learned about because of all the different things that go on between the Federal Communications Commission the, um, the different divisions of the Department of Commerce, and we have the State Department, but we we can't stand up as a business to talk in these venues. You have to have your government representative talk. So what you do is you back channel and you, you have a conversation, and they used to bring experts with them to say, like we were talking about with satellites, maybe Jim Dunstan would go on the delegation to say, I can, you know, there he's the guy you pull in to say, how does this work? Does this really work? Because you get in the middle of these heated discussions and deliberations, and you need somebody there to be like, yeah, that's actually how it functions or that guy's full of it. So then it became, we became unenamored with it about uh, 10 years ago. And so all the companies stopped sending Americans, you know, company delegate on the delegation and the Russians and the Chinese took very strong notice to that and doubled down and started sending many more people to these uh, standards bodies, which is why you're seeing Huawei as a challenge. Huawei used to be, all they did was we innovated it. Companies like Huawei would make it. Um, same thing with uh, ZTE and, you know, and, and instead now they are actually getting to the development stage and they're, they're back, they're reverse engineering into innovation and they're becoming more innovative. That is a big problem for us because we are used to being the innovative part of that cycle and we're used to it eventually coming back on our shores, which is why we have push so much of the uh, what goes on into to Asia as far as the actual create, you know, the creation, the innovation starts here, but the creation goes over to Asia and that comes back here as a final product. So it sounds kind of ethereal, but this whole ITU process is very important to that because of these standards bodies. It, it's why, you know, how USB ports come about. It's how the spectrum, you know, it's, it's how Elon Musk gets a spectrum. 
because you have to share that globally because it's going to put those satellites up. They're going to run around the earth, you know, the entire earth. They just don't you know, stay in one place all the time. So uh, definitely watching for the ITU that'll be coming up in September. Shane, this has been so informative and I appreciate your time so much. Um, I'd like to reiterate again, you are a true friend of tech freedom and we always appreciate your time and your wisdom. Uh, as we head out the door, is there anything about you and your work coming up that you'd like to give us a preview of or share or tell us about? You know, the one area I, I, I find interesting, so as I mentioned, these antitrust slash competition bills are very frustrating. Um, as someone who came back last night uh, on a, a train, was able to get on the, an app, order my groceries, and they showed up at 710 this morning, I think there's, I mean, I'm for that. I don't know why we want to get in the middle of these companies figuring out how to use the algorithms to make consumers happy. Um, I worry about privacy. Um, I think that, you know, I, I can't really don't believe in privacy. I believe in data uh, protection. So I think we do need to figure out how to work data protection before, you know, not only from a personal privacy perspective, which is where I think the privacy comes in, but from the idea of like, you know, what we're seeing with the Chinese and the Russians come in because the data is very valuable. If we can figure out how to make the data less interesting, which includes not data hoarding, not keeping so much information on the servers, um, which is also good for the environment, by the way, uh, we, um, you know, I think we would be better off. So I'll, I'll probably be writing a lot about that. And then I'm just always fascinated with where they're going to, once the government starts throwing off money, this whole, where the broadband funding is going to be going. I'm sure like the rest of the, our, our people will be, you know, watching that as well and watching your space lawyer. I always like to know what Jim's up to. Very important. Well, thank you so much for giving a little plug for technological progress and sort of keeping populist myths off of it. Um, I will use that to shamelessly plug Tech Freedom. Uh, go to our website, techfreedom.org. As Shane pointed out, you probably don't have to put the www in at the beginning. You can just type Tech Freedom. Uh, donate button right up at the top right. Feel free to click on that. And um, as long as the Russians haven't destroyed the zeros and ones and drained your bank account, you could uh, give some of that to us. Um, also, this podcast, the Tech Policy Podcast, as I've been saying the past few episodes, I'm going to start being better about uh, asking for that five-star review. If you want to just take a moment, uh, it helps us out. And while you go do that, I am going to go and start working on the next episode. Shane, thank you one more time so much. Shane Twos of AEI. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.